So on Friday night, there was a kind of a community Christmas event in Zealand where our family lives. And so if you went downtown, you could, you could meet and pet the reindeer. You could do open houses for particular shops that were having Christmas sales. And yes, you could have a horse-drawn carriage ride. So of course, I, I signed us up for that. And Kelly and I pile our kids into this majestic white horse-drawn carriage. And we all bury ourselves under these flannel cozy blankets. It was like a scene right out of a Hallmark Christmas movie. And I should know. Because my wife Kelly has seen most or all of them. There are 136. I wish I, would ma I was making this up. I'm not. There, there are that many. So all, all that to say, we get in the carriage and we're kind of winding our way around the streets of Zealand. We head west on Central Street. And as we pass by these historic homes, we see many of them have these plywood five by four foot Christmas cards. They're hand painted and electronically lit. And they've got Christmas images. And they've got Christmas sentiments. And they've got Christmas words in, in bold colors and bold letters. And they say things like joy, peace, hope. They're words that we see and hear a lot of this Christmas season. But if you're at all like me, sometimes you want to ask a follow-up question. Which is, peace for who? Joy when? What shape does that hope take? And precisely when, when is it arriving? To those of us who feel steeped in heartache and chaos this Christmas season. Like if you're experiencing a season of, of brokenness or disappointment or despair, maybe there's a part of you who says, yeah, that, that's like one of those too good to be true TV commercials for a product. And then like you go online and you read the fine print and you're like, oh, that's only for three people in the universe and that's only for three hours one day out of the year. And sometimes we go, oh, these, all these Christmas sentiments, they're, they're nice and glowing. I, I don't know if they're for me. I, I don't know if any of that connects with me. I don't know if, if I'm receiving any of that in a set of circumstances where I desperately need it. Yesterday we had the privilege of hosting our annual Christmas store here at Central and hundreds of families who are facing economic hardship streamed through these doors and hundreds of you were so generous in your giving of gifts and financial resources or in your time. It was just, it was, it was an amazing moment for people to express a spirit of generosity and gratitude and celebration together. And one of the stops that families and individuals could make uh, on their kind of Christmas shopping journey is once they picked out gifts for their children and had those gifts wrapped in the lobby, they could kind of go into our children's ring and receive prayer from a member of our care team. And we asked this question, if there is one area in your life where your family needs hope this Christmas, what is it? And how can we pray for it? And more, on more than one occasion, I had families personally tell me, if you're going to pray for one thing in our family, please pray for us as we face legitimate financial strain. And the kinds of circumstances that we were hearing um, were, were overwhelming. And sometimes when I, look at the, when I look at pictures of the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on Christmas cards, or I view them in nativity scenes. Does anybody else ever notice that they all look immaculately put together? 
Like the, the robes are never tattered. There are never any stains. Joseph doesn't have patches where his knees are. And the, the, all their garments are like recently dry cleaned and spotless. But when we actually dig into the Christmas narrative, we realize that that would not have been the case at all. That Mary and Joseph were no strangers to hardship. They were a group of people just like, just like we are who are faced with very real challenges and trials in their lives, and they're trying to navigate those trials with hope. And I'm going to argue today that in order for us to take the long view when it comes to some of the hurdles we are facing, we need to do so with anticipation, with revelation, and participation. These are the dimensions of hope. So let's, let's go to the text and see what what some of, how the deck felt stacked against Mary and Joseph in some circumstances. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22, says this. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So remember, their hometown is Nazareth. They're about 100 miles away from home. They're in Bethlehem. They walk six miles with a newborn to the temple in Jerusalem. For Mary's purification rites, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. I don't know about you. Usually when I read this passage, I'm just skipping right over the details because I remember, like, I hearken back in my mind to being five and knowing that these are verses that I had to endure before I could open my stockings. So like, I just kind of tuned parts of it out, but the details are here for a reason. What, what, are the, what are the pigeons all about? Well, in order to get full context, we have to back up and go to the verse of scripture that the author here, Luke, is quoting. Leviticus chapter 12, which was written centuries before, makes this Demand of new mothers. It says, when the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting or the temple a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. What does Mary bring? Two young pigeons. It's not that Mary and Joseph don't have access to a lamb. For crying out loud, they just met a bunch of shepherds. It's that they can't afford one. They, like many in our area, are facing very real financial obstacles. They're looking for hope, some kind of change in their circumstances. And so the story continues. It introduces us to two kind of hidden characters in the, t the Christmas narrative. We continue, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation, for the comfort, for the solace of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. 
Sovereign Lord, he says, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. My days on this earth can be done now. I've seen all that I have longed for. My eyes have seen your salvation, which have prepared in the sight of all the nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. The child's father and mother, Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon is a master of hope. He has learned to walk in anticipation. He's learned to walk in anticipation. And what I'm learning about anticipation is that sometimes God doesn't say when he is going to do something, but tells us who he is in the waiting. God doesn't always tell us when, but he always tells us who. My friend Catherine says, God is always on time, and he's always too late for us. He's always on time and he's always too late for us. Why? Because we are an impatient people. How many of you remember a time where you would order a package, like you'd pick up the phone to order something or you'd just like order something via mail and they would say, this package will be there in five days and you're like, that is amazing. It'll be here in less than a week. Now if something comes in less than 48 hours, we are appalled with the wreckage that has gone wrong in the universe. Like if we can't track our package, if we don't know when it left the processing center, we don't know how to spend our time. We, we like things like this. We, we don't live in a slow roast culture. We live in a microwave culture. And Simeon said, you know what? Anticipation knows this. We don't, God doesn't give us a delivery date. Amen. God says who the deliverer is. God says who the deliverer is. And all he told Simeon was, you're going to see this before you die. And if I'm Simeon, I would be like, can, it, can I get a rough time frame? I would like to plan parts of my existence. But God doesn't do that to him. And, he, and how many of you have learned yet that God doesn't do it for us? God says, I'm going to take care of you, but I'm not going to always tell you when or how. Hopeful anticipation anchors us in the belief that God is working in God's way and God's time. And while God doesn't give Simeon a date, he continually affirms his faithfulness to Simeon and to Israel. He was waiting, and as he waited, God met him in the waiting and matured him in that process. Look at these phrases. It says, the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. The Holy Spirit revealed a truth to Simeon. The Holy Spirit revealed a very specific promise to Simeon that he would see the Messiah before he died. And then it says that the Holy Spirit moved him into the temple courts. Think about this for a moment. If you've ever been to Israel and you've been to the Temple Mount, you know that it is a massive structure. Just hundreds of square yards of, of, of pavement. And the fact that Simeon was in the right place at the right time to meet Mary, who would have been one of dozens, if not hundreds, of mothers who were bringing newborns to be get it, dedicated in the temple that day, it was no accident that he was in that exact spot when they came through the gate. God prompted Simeon to be where he needed to be so that he would know that the promise was fulfilled. And Simeon's name literally means to hearken. His name means to listen. And he's been spending his whole life saying, Spirit, what do you need me to know today? Spirit, where do you need me to go today? Spirit, will you remind me that you are on me and with me today? And he bursts into a song. 
Theologians call it Simeon's song. And apparently Luke liked to do things in triplicate. So if you look at the nativity narrative, you'll see that Elizabeth has a song about John the Baptist. And then Mary has a song about Jesus. And then Simeon rounds out the trilogy with his own song about Jesus. And he says, everything I've lived for is cultivated in this moment. There's that beautiful line in the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that says the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the tonight, right now. Simeon could have sung that line to open up his song. He says, Jesus is salvation. He will be displayed to all of the tribes and all of the peoples. He is a light to the Gentiles and he's a glory for Israel. So Simeon was walking through life with this sense of anticipation, this hopeful expectation that God was going to do something that he couldn't see, that God had insight into his circumstances that he did not yet have. And in some of those circumstances, God lifted up the curtain. He kind of peeled back the veil so that Simeon could, could have some clarity, some understanding. And he does this in the blessing that Simeon gives to Mary. He says, this child, this baby, is going to cause the rising of the low and the destruction of kings. He goes, people in high places are going to be brought down. People in low places are going to get lifted up. He says, oh, and by the way, your son is going to be spoken against. And he's going to reveal the thoughts, the hidden thoughts that are in people's hearts. And then he tells Mary this. And he goes, and know this, a, a sword is going to pierce your soul. It is the most ominous and random blessing that you could give a, a mother of a newborn ever. It's a little bit dark. But why does he know that? Because the Spirit is revealing things to him that he would not otherwise know. And there's two ways that we can wait. We can either wait and just say, all right, I think this is coming. Or we can wait watching, we can wait listening, we can wait anticipating. And Simeon has revelation added to his anticipation because he's constantly walking with the Spirit. He's daily listening to the Lord. In Revelation, God doesn't say how he's going to do something, but he says that he will do it. Sometimes when I read Simeon's story, I go, oh, it's so, it's so, it must have been nice to be Simeon. How amazing that he hears the voice of God with consistency and clarity. Because that voice, that insight, that revelation, it sustains him. It encourages strangers like Mary and Joseph, and it challenges friends. Sometimes I forget that the same spirit that was with Simeon, that spoke to Simeon, that prompted Simeon, is available to us. Yes, I do believe that some people have what the scripture calls a unique prophetic gifting. At the same time, I believe that the events that are described in Acts chapter 2 remind us is that God's heart is for all of us to dream God-sized dreams. To see the pictures of what God sees in ways that we couldn't see without him. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, people like Simeon are not the exception. They're the rule. Because the Spirit of God was unleashed and poured out on the day of Pentecost, all sorts of people, regardless of education, theological training, class, and gender, all of us have the ability to hear from the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, be prompted by the Spirit. As you take the long view on the challenges that you face, are you walking with anticipation? Are you believing that God has a plan, an arc, a design for whatever it is that you're going through. And then also, do you have any revelation 
Are you asking God to make clear to you those things that don't make sense? Do you sense the Spirit walking with you? Are you listening for anything that the Spirit might be telling you? Are you asking God to give you insight on the challenges or the relationships that are in front of you? Rather than trying to unlock the secrets of the universe, maybe instead we should ask God to reveal to us the thoughts of many hearts. Or maybe not the thoughts of many hearts. Maybe we should just be asking God to reveal to us the thoughts of one heart, namely mine. Have you ever ever noticed that sometimes what's happening in your heart is not something that you're consciously aware of? How many of us have had a moment where something happened at the office or something happened at home or something happened with a child or something happened with a dog and we just lost our brain and our response in that moment was alarmingly disproportionate to what the situation called for? Maybe Maybe I'm the only one. How many of you have had somebody just kind of put their hand on your shoulder and say, maybe something else is going on here? And people who love us help us peel back the layers to be able to say, wow, maybe there's a seed or a root of anger or fear or anxiety or insecurity that's triggering what else is going on. And I want to be honest with you, the easiest prayer for me to pray is God fix that. The more dangerous prayer for me to pray is, God, will you reveal to me what's going on in me? And if there's something that's out of alignment, or if there's something cracked, or there's something broken, or there's something selfish, or there's something lustful, or if there's something greedy, will you you reveal that? Will you show that to me so that I can confess it, so that I can admit it, so that I can get the help that I need, so that you could root it out and we could start fresh? Because many times in the season of anticipation, I forget that God wants to transform me, not just fix it all. Taking the long view with our hope requires anticipation, revelation, and yes, participation. Waiting in hope doesn't mean sitting on our hands and wistfully gazing at the stars. It means rolling up our sleeves and getting to work at the task at hand. Participation means that God doesn't say where he's always going to answer prayer, but he does tell us what our next step is. God doesn't always say you're going to get a miracle in this way on this day, but he is going to say your faithful act of trust and obedience in this set of circumstance is this. Take one step in the direction that I'm leading you. And nobody does this better than Anna. The text says, there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, Mary and Joseph, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. And spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Anna, her name means favor. Asher, the tribe that she is descended from, means happy. So already in the story, the names, the terms are trending towards something 
positive. One scholar, D.M. Scholler, says it's not clear whether she was 84 at the time of the story or whether she had been a widow for 84 years, which means that she was 14 when she got married, plus seven years of marriage, plus 84 years as a widow, would have meant she was 105 years of age, an age reached by Judith, a mythical and legendary hero in Israel. All that to say, it doesn't matter how you do the math, Anna has been waiting for a long, long time. She said that she was drawn to the redemption of Jerusalem. That word redemption either means to rescue from captivity or to forgive of sin. Now, why is this personal for Anna? Why does she care so deeply about the redemption of Jerusalem? short little history lesson tells us that about 63 years before Jesus was born, the Romans invaded Jerusalem. And the emperor, or sorry, the military commander, the general there, Pompey, in order to make a statement, when they broke through the exterior walls of Jerusalem, he went straight to the temple. And then he went inside the temple. Now, in Jewish culture, if anybody who's not a priest goes into the most sacred part, the Holy of Holies in the temple, the temple is desecrated. The temple is polluted. For all intents and purposes, at least for a temporary window of time, the temple is completely and utterly broken. And so not only would the military failure and the failure to protect the house of God be a national embarrassment to Israel, the fact that somebody had broken their cultural symbol of unity and chosen this by God would have been close to unbearable. It's not just a challenge to their pride, it's a challenge to their view of God. The Mosaic law said that only the high priest was allowed in the Holy of Holies. And if a pagan can waltz in there without penalty, then maybe everything we believe is up for grabs. Anna was either 25 or in her early 40s when this happened, and it had to have been a trauma for everyone who was alive at the time. And at this point, Anna has a choice. She could either throw up her hands in disgust and say, none of it was worth it, and walk away from her value system, from her faith, from her identity, from her story. Or she can say, I don't know why this is melting down right now. I don't know why everything that I care about and believe in is imploding before my very eyes. But I believe that God is still sovereign and that his rule is real. And rather than running away, I'm going to lean in. That's precisely what she does. She dedicates herself to fasting and prayer and worship and thanks. It says basically she sets up camp in the court of the women. So basically the temple area was set up in concentric circles. There was the temple itself that had the Holy of Holies. There was the court of men. There was the court of women. Then there was the court of Gentiles. And so the reason that Anna was in a prime location to meet Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus is because she was there all the time, fasting, praying, thanking God, praising God, seeking God. The story doesn't just say that Anna waited. The story tells us exactly how she waited. And I believe that the posture of our patience matters. The posture that we take as we wait tells us what we believe about God and tells everybody else the same. 
If we wait anxiously, if we wait kind of wringing our hands, then it shows that we're not fully confident that God's going to do what God does. But if we wait leaning in, if we wait saying, all right, I'm not going to just wait passively, because there's a difference between passive waiting and active waiting. Passive waiting leans back in our chairs, twiddles our thumbs, and waits for God to do whatever it is that God's going to do. Active waiting doesn't go to the back of the seat. Active waiting leans forward in the front of the seat and says, God's going to do something. I want to be ready when it happens. And if there is anything in me that would prevent me from fully experiencing what God has in this moment, I'm, gonna, I'm just constantly going to rinse my system and be where I need to be and prepared to, to receive the gift when the timing for it comes. Fasting is a focusing of our appetites so that we can be hungry for what God is hungry for. And praying is aligning our hearts with God. Now here's what I forget. When Anna meets the baby, Israel is not immediately transformed. Nevertheless, she thanks God that it will be and spoke about the child to everybody who is hungry for redemption. The truth is, Anna never got to see Jesus speak as an adult. Anna never got to see Jesus feed a multitude with bread. She never got to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. She never got to see Jesus crucified and risen on his own. But the fact that he had come onto the scene, the fact that he was alive and breathing, the fact that he had a name was enough for her. It was enough for her. My question is what would it look like for us to live our lives leaning into anticipation, asking God for revelation, and choosing to be a person of participation? Say, God, I'm leaning forward. I'm believing that you're going to do something. God, I'm believing that you see what I can't see, and I'm going to ask you to reveal to me pieces of my own life, my own character, my own backstory that I'm not even fully aware of. And as I wait, as I hope, as I learn, I'm going to, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to do everything that I know how to do to keep in step with the Spirit. My question is, what would it be like to hope with the wonder of a child. Like, some of us still have children who are young enough to just be absolutely wonder-stricken at the idea of Christmas. And some of us are grandparents who are getting the chance to do it all over again. Uh, but our youngest is eight, and her eyes still burst with light as she thinks about what's coming. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. We've got an advent calendar that's on our wall. I don't know who decided to fill advent calendars with chocolate, but now it's an excuse for kids to have dessert at breakfast. So they race down the stairs, they pull the chocolates out of the thing, they eat them, and they're like, we're one day closer. We're one day closer. Something's coming. Something good is coming. Something amazing is going to happen. And, and many of us, we just kind of get... You get used to the whole thing. We're like, oh, instead of saying Christmas is coming, we're like, oh, I only have X more shipping days available to get gifts. <laughs> and we, we view this moment of wonder with, with dread and with cynicism and maybe with fatalism. So many of us are saying like, man, if I could, if I could skip Christmas because I know that these family dynamics are going to be in play, I would be just fine with that. And instead of saying maybe God wants to do something new, and maybe if God doesn't change them, maybe God wants to do something new in me. 
I'm, I'm going to believe in that. I'm going to think towards that. I'm going to pray towards that end. Or am I just going to say, nah, it's just going to be what it's going to be. I want to I have that Anna and Simeon and Mary approach to life. Where I say, who knows what God might want to do on this day. And maybe, maybe this is the day. Because Anna and Simeon, when they were in the temple courts, they didn't know that was going to be the day. That was just another day at the office. And God said, open your eyes. Today is the day where dreams come to life. Today is the day where truth gets locked into place. And it's my prayer. It's my prayer that we as individuals, we as families, we as a church, we as a, a broader Holland community, we could be the kind of people who are leaning forward in our seats saying, what? What is it that God might do to redeem individual lives, families, churches, yes, even nations, for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom, if we are aware and attuned to his voice?